0: All right. Well, I would say that we are back, but we is I today and Dr. Leary, who is sort of wandering around somewhere, running up and down the stairs. And I was trying to lure him down here. And for those who might not know, Dr. Leary is my cat. In any case, it's just me today. Serge is working on his documentary, extremely busy, has been tired, has been worn out. Anybody who has worked on a project like that, I think will understand. It's a lot. So when people see movies, they see obviously something that's been edited, something that's been polished, something that's been looked at by uh, numerous people sometimes a half dozen, sometimes dozens, sometimes hundreds, depending on the sort of scale of the movie you're making, even for a documentary film, hundreds of hours of footage, dozens and dozens of characters, potential plot lines, subplot lines, uh, the messages you want to get across, the symbolism you would like to get across, the overarching narrative, the inflection points, it's an arduous process and one that I don't think is probably appreciated enough, enough as it should be, and it's for an obvious reason, and that's because, unfortunately, a small number of people even get the opportunity to make a film. And that's the case because... We don't have those kind of programs in public schools. It's extremely expensive to learn about them in college. And it's even more rare to find a job doing it that can pay you to provide for your family. And so very few people get the opportunity to do something like that. Now, I would like to think in the system or the society I would like to live in, And there would be opportunities for anyone to make a film, to write a book, to put something out there. You can't tell me that the movies and the scripts we're getting in Hollywood uh, is the best of the best, 330, 340 million people who live in this country. You can't tell me that what we're getting is the best stuff that we could possibly get. So in any case, Serge is busy. I... Uh, having always something to say, but not really in a ranting mood tonight, in more of a kind of upbeat mood, even though, you know, it seems like everything's falling apart around us. So, yeah, COVID is really kicking our ass in the United States. It's particularly kicking our ass here in Indiana. I think I just read an article earlier that said, that Indiana had the third highest per capita hospitalization rate in the country right now. That's not good news. I think it's the same with the death rate. So if if you're in Indiana and you're hearing this, please stay safe best you can. It actually brings up a point that I would like to talk about and something that I might I think I'm gonna do a a solo video. Maybe two or three minutes about this because I think it's important and my mind is changing on this topic significantly. So I've been thinking a lot about the anger and resentment that I've felt towards the people who just can't seem to follow the social distancing protocol, the masking protocol. And on one level, I do think some of it is justified. I do think, you know, maybe I'm just telling myself that but (laughs) to make myself feel better. But I do think some of it is justified. It's upsetting to see people act so irresponsibly when they don't need to. On the other hand, you know, I had a conversation with a friend the other day and I, you know, he was like, God damn it. You know, Americans are this, Americans are that, and I'm like, you know, but is it that it's just Americans and Brazilians and Indians who are the most ignorant people in the world, or is it that India, Brazil, and the United States are currently ran by right-wing, quasi, or total, totally uh, authoritarian governments? I tend to think it's the latter. I mean, I don't think that people in Brazil or India or the United States are inherently more ignorant than anyone else around the world. I think those three countries, the country in which I live, and Brazil and India, have been particularly ravaged by the pandemic because these countries are ran by right-wing governments. So, it's hard when there's been, that's one aspect. Another aspect, of course, is that we live in this completely fragmented media landscape. Everyone is getting their news from different sources. Sources are hard to trust. Traditionally trusted institutions, to the, ex- to the extent that even those institutions were trusted, have become less trustworthy in the eyes of the public and many times rightfully so. And so it's really hard to get down on people too much when our public infrastructure has been devastated, our public education system uh, has been a, you know, underfunded and and for many communities has been a disaster and then what's came to fill it, you know, to Overtake it and fill in the gaps or however you want to put that, you know, charter schools, all of this has been a disaster. Uh, So we have a population that doesn't trust institutions, definitely doesn't trust the mainstream media. The government is, you know, completely dysfunctional. And of course, Trump being in power didn't help at all. And exacerbated all of these existing problems. And now I'm thinking to myself. If I'm some person. Who has to put myself in danger every day anyway. So if I'm some person who say is working at a gas station. And I'm putting myself in contact. Now some of these gas stations have like. You know big walls or plexiglass, I'm sorry, sort of, you know, separate uh, barriers that would separate the cashier from the customer. But nonetheless, you know, let's say you're in one of the gas stations that don't. Or let's say you're working the front counter of a fast food restaurant, or you're a server, you know, you're a bartender. If you're a bartender right now, how in the fuck would you care, or why in the fuck, I'm sorry, would you care About what you do after hours after just interacting with dozens of people. I mean, it's hard to get upset with people when it's the government, the leadership, the Trump administration, the media, the lack of a quality education that people are receiving, the ability to decipher scientific information from bullshit. You know, it's really hard to get down on people when that's the context in which this happens. And then on top of all of this, and the only reason any of this is happening, of course, is that I'm sure most of you who are going to listen to this, know there's, uh, we, you know, we have a government that refuses to pay people unlike every other major country, uh, on the, in the, you know, in the world, it's, Astounding that all of this has happened because our government failed to recognize. Obviously, Trump lied. We know why he lied. Election year, all the rest. But, you know, it just could have paid people to stay home. And if they would have paid people to stay home, we wouldn't have went through 80, 90% of the insanity that we've endured over the last several, well, after the last nine months now. It'll be close, we'll be saying, over the last year. So it's a matter of good government versus shit government. And since we have a shit government, nobody knows what's going on, and people aren't paid to stay home, So they have to put themselves in danger anyway. And if you're putting yourself in danger anyway for a job that you likely don't want to go to, that you have to go to, that you probably don't feel particularly passionate about, you know, it's really, really hard at this stage in the game to blame those people for wanting to go out and enjoy themselves and do really whatever the fuck they want to do. Because, uh who knows how long this is going to last, and we could very well be in a situation where, uh, again, the vaccines don't quite mean, I think, what everybody think thinks they mean or what they're going to mean for our ability to socialize and do all the rest. So, I it's a, this is going to remain the top, the number one issue. This and the economy are going to remain the two issues for the next year, if not longer. So... I know people might be somewhat sick and tired of hearing me talk about this, but I don't know how we can't talk about it when it is the thing that is sort of coloring our lives. But anyway, we will move on. One of the books that I've been reading and going back to throughout the pandemic has been uh, Sigmund Freud's Civilization and Its Discontents. I'm not going to get into a long conversation or dialogue here today about this with you. But I am going to do a review of civilization and its discontents, why I appreciate the book, what the book uh, has, not what it's meant, it's the wrong word, but why I revisit the book and why I've revisited the book over the last decade. Why it remains probably in my top five favorite books of all time. And why I continue to revisit it, particularly in times of great distress and disaster, calamity, and so on. So, look forward to that. Going to be doing more solo stuff. Surge is going to... Uh... Well, actually, I'll hold off on announcing that as well, so I'll hold off. But anyway, I'll be doing more solo stuff. Expect that. We'll be doing more solo videos. Speaking of solo videos, we started to put out a series called Why People Hate the Left. Now, let me be very clear about why we did that. First, let me take a drink. This is the only problem with... Doing a program solo is that if you don't wet your gullet properly prior to the program, there will be pauses because you have to take a drink. Oh, and Diet Coke, no less. I really have to order some regular Coca-Cola. Diet Coke is like the worst thing in the world, but it was the only thing that was cold down here. Anyway, no complaining. That is definitely a first world problem, as they said a few years ago. The series, Why People Hate the Left, the only reason that we're doing this is not to like troll the left, but it is to get a perspective out there that I often think is lacking. And my point about this would be it's going to be very brief because this will be like a weekly series that we do. We'll just keep putting it out two, three, sometimes 30 seconds, sometimes, you know, a minute, two, three, four. Maybe five at the most. Uh, minute videos, just little stories that we'll share. The one that I'm a, that I will put out will be a short story about someone yelling at me for keeping the water on uh, while I was washing my hands at this political uh, strategy retreat that I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico for back in 2010. <laughs> That's a, it's a real story, and I can't wait to share it. And I have dozens like that. The point of this is somewhat to entertain, somewhat to make light of something that I actually think is a serious topic and I think it's a good sort of segue into it. So we'll the first video I made was probably a little aggressive. We'll we'll go a little less aggressive the next time. Some of them will be funny, some of them will be probably sad. But the point isn't to troll the left. The point is to make videos from the perspective of two guys who accidentally in a lot of ways fell into left-wing politics in the U.S. And what our reflections are after spending the last 15 years uh, engaged with left-wing politics and political movements and organizations and campaigns and efforts, projects, whatever you want to say, over the last decade and a half is to share those experiences in the hope that people who are coming up now can avoid some of the same mistakes we made but also a lot of the mistakes we saw other people make and hopefully that's what we could do I mean that's the that's the hope I think with videos like that and you kind of make light of it I mean sometimes you have to really put the hammer down and be like this is bullshit (laughs) like this is you know, whatever it is, the topic, I mean, the other day it was, you know, someone telling me that I needed to incorporate more black queer theory to, uh, you know, really be an effective organizer where I live here in Michigan City. I I would argue you probably don't need to incorporate that as you're organizing, uh, part of your organizing 101, uh, and it's not uh, something that is in most people's lexicon. So again, this gets back to whether people want to virtue signal or whether people want to actually learn things that matter. Now, having said that, I want to clarify something because I got all kinds of messages from people. If you want to talk about those topics, fantastic. I, look, I'm into continental philosophy. I wasn't trained in continental philosophy but I appreciate reading a lot of continental philosophy. In fact, we're going to have probably about a half dozen continental philosophers coming on the program in the next couple of months. Uh, one of them we just interviewed the other day. is an old friend of ours. And uh, something I'm going to get into in a second because it's going to be a somewhat controversial interview for a couple of reasons. First of all, though, let me say this. Uh getting back to uh, the series, you know, why people uh, hate the left. Uh, The point of doing this is to sort of expose a lot of the nonsense that we've seen over the years. And again, I just want to be very, very clear that that is the reason why we're, why we're doing that. And yeah, I, I think it'll be, I mean, I also think it'll be fun. Um, I got off track there. I'm going to go back and I'll have to listen to this. And I'm sure by the time it comes out, I'll be like, God damn it. I missed an important point that I wanted to make about who the hell we were having on the, Oh, what I'm into goofy shit. I'm sorry. Jesus Christ. This is what happens when you don't have somebody to reel you in or live feedback from people. So if you want to talk about black queer theory, I'm not going to get into what my take is on that today. But if you want to get into it and talk about it I think that's fine. In your off time at a college seminar with your friends uh, at a philosophy conference uh, at a sociological conference how that informs people's view of the world uh, I think is highly inflated. Uh, the, the, The notion that By learning black queer theory, that or black feminist theory, et cetera, that your view of the world is uh, significantly enhanced. Now, let me also say, I have enjoyed reading uh, people like Bell Hooks over the years. I think there's some things she says that are crazy, but again. I don't like to just write people off one way or the other. There's a lot of, I read a lot of people's stuff that I don't agree with them on 50% of what they say, but I think they're great writers. I think they might have good insights here or there. I think it's important to also understand where people are coming from who you don't agree with. And so I can understand, you know, people who would engage with this material. Now, in college, when I was taking all kinds of sociology courses, political science courses, and so on, and reading uh, different black theorists, and then taking uh, gender studies courses and learning about queer theory and the difference between that and how people identify, the difference between sex and gender, at least as they see it. Um, and I don't know how, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, the motto My my, like, how much has it changed the way I interact with people? I mean, not much because I still think at the end of the day it's about respecting people and not treating them like assholes and treating everyone with the same amount of respect so it doesn't, you know, fucking matter if you're at a job interview or if you just ran into, uh, you know, the taxi driver outside of the job interview or if you just ran into the homeless cat who's, you know, standing outside next to the taxi driver or, you know, if you run into a stray dog on the street. Like, I mean, if you talk to your uh, conductor on the subway, like if you, the person who serves you your burger, like this, these, every single person you encounter, in my thinking, should be treated with the same respect. Now, who you click with and who you gravitate towards, that's a totally different thing. But in terms of that initial... Interaction. Uh, there should be a, uh, I think, the same amount of respect, regardless of who you're who you're talking to, and how much has my understanding of Black queer theory or uh, Black feminist theory informed the way that I can speak to people politically? Um, it hasn't that much, to be honest with you. Has it informed the way that I see the world? yes in terms of black feminist theory um it's definitely informed the way i've seen the world it's informed the way that i've went back and re-examined and interrogated uh previous lessons that i've learned about previous political movements around the world you know so often of course the heroes are men so often of course the heroes are uh, you know the uh, uh, just a few men you know and and Women are left completely out of the picture, and then not only are women left out of the picture, but black women are left out of the picture even more so than white women, and on and on. So to the degree that it's helped me understand those things, I am grateful. Now, what does that do for my understanding of what to do about any of the problems in the world? It it hasn't really informed uh, my understanding of what to do about the problems in the world. I think what many people take away from those kinds of teachings or whatever books they're reading or documentaries they're watching, speakers they're listening to, whatever it may be, I think for a lot of people is uh, that they think, okay, well, we should center uh, black women at the center of this political effort. Well, I think the context matters. If you live in a place like Michigan City, Uh, where one-third of the city is black. I think that might work in some context, depending on what the campaign or project is about, depending what the movement's demands are, depending on a number of things. But in a country where only, I believe, 14.7% of the population, I have to look that up, so don't kill me for just saying stuff. Um, I I believe it's 14.7%, but I might be slightly off. Of the country is black or identifies as African American. You, the idea that you're going to center uh, black females who make up less—I think half. I'm sorry, half of that number, so seven percent, you know, seven point three point five or whatever it is, seven point three five percent of uh, the United States. You're not going to center uh a, a demographic that represents 7.3% of the United States in all of your political efforts. And I think it's disingenuous to try and do that because I have yet to meet any black woman who's ever told me that she wants to be at the center of every political effort that's going on. Yet, you would think that by the sort of sloganeering rhetoric that a lot of people on the left use that that is, in fact, what the case should be all the time. And I think that's a problem. And this is, again, the kind of stuff that turns people off. It not only turns people off from the outside looking in, but it turns people off on the inside who are obviously looking around. They're living in a neighborhood or in a city or in a job site or wherever they are, and maybe less than half, maybe less than a quarter, in some places maybe less than 10 or even 5% or even 2%. Of the people they know. Work around. Live around. Are black. So the point isn't to make those people feel bad. The point is. To show them a way. To maybe. Organize in their own context. With their own understandings. About the. You know their circumstances. And where they live. And the people who live around them. And to perhaps show them how they can. Work with. Other movements and groups, you know, team up with organizations that might be predominantly black or maybe all black. What would that organizing look like? Those are interesting conversations to me, um, but I don't think by teaching that person or ramming the kind of theories you would, you would read or learn about by reading uh, black queer theorists or black feminist theorists Some people would combine the two of them and say black queer feminist theorists. I mean, even that kind of language I think is highly detrimental because I think most people don't know what it means. And unless you've been to certain college classes, how the hell would you? So anyway, I just wanted to clarify my position there because it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with talking about any of these topics. I think they should be talked about and debated. But I don't think it's our number one priority. And I don't think, even by talking and debating the topic, that it's going to help us organize people. Because the people who would be talking and debate, talking about and debating this topic, are largely people who are disconnected from the kind of people that we need to reach out to to actually make a difference. So there's that. What else did I want to wrap about? Oh, our friend Abital. So we are. We did interview our friend, Avital Ronell. She, just to be clear, had just recently been through uh, an incident over the last couple of years. So let me back up. So Avital is a sort of world-renowned, infamous, also, I guess you could say controversial figure controversial to the extent that depending on who you talk to she her name would bring up uh, anything from never-ending praise to never-ending criticism so I guess you could say controversial she's one of my favorites she's a friend and also a mutual friend of Olivier morale who's been on the program you've heard us talk about Olivier plenty of times In any case, she is a world-renowned continental philosopher, has written many books, uh, probably best known for bringing Derrida's work, uh, Jacques Derrida, who is a French postmodern philosopher who uh, developed the concept of deconstructionism. That was sort of his claim to... Uh, greatness, fame, infamy, uh, never-ending critique and praise, just like Avital. So I think Avital has always gotten a lot of shit because she was the person who I think really made Derrida's work, uh, you know, a component of U.S. academia. So long story short, because that sounds like a bunch of just craziness that you might not be interested in, Uh, Avital... Is also, I think, a great poet and an artist as much as she is a philosopher. Anyway, let's get cut to the chase. So she got embroiled in a controversy at New York University over the last couple of years because of some shit that went down with a graduate student that uh, they had a relationship, but the relationship wasn't quite clear what kind of relationship. This gentleman uh, claimed that Avital was uh, misusing her, <clears throat> her position or her uh, position of power, et cetera, et cetera. People jumped on this opportunity to just trash Avital, uh, which I found interesting, of course, in this context of Me Too, because for all of the men who've been doing shady, fucked-up shit for a long time, one incident. We don't even really know the details of the incident. I mean, there's a there's it's a lot. It's not a clear cut story what this was, and it definitely was not, uh, you know, something like what one might call sexual harassment, let alone rape or any of these kinds of terms uh, or things that people would do. It's not. It's not even anything on that. It's not in the same universe. So that's number one. Number two, people jumped on this opportunity because. I think people were trying to go after her work before that, anyway, and I think people are just pissed that because of her, in a lot of places, students are reading Derrida. I know a lot of people have problem with Derrida. Uh, I do not. I think, like again, a lot of thinkers uh, like Heidegger, someone who personally, politically, very problematic, very disgusting. Uh, as a thinker ideas stuff he wrote very important work sort of the same with the music that people listen to so people who i mean i think everybody's a hypocrite at the end of the day if, if i'm just being honest i mean if you're listening to the rolling stones or led zeppelin or i mean let's just name the amount of artists who've had sexual relationships with underage women underage boys um This is all well-known. Hollywood people, actors, uh, producers, all these people. That's not to excuse it. It's just to say that I try to separate... I've had to separate the person from the art. Now, with Avital, I have not had to do that because in my experience with Avital, she's been nothing but wonderful, gracious, uh, beautiful, kind, genuinely warm person. So a lot of the... uh, commentary that i've seen from people about this incident that went down a couple years ago i think was greatly at odds with my experience with her number 3 i think it's important to forgive people so you know i told sergio the other day and i'll say this again you know, i've been using this line several times and let me take a drink here Throughout the years, I've had an opportunity to go to a lot of places, give a lot of talks, and one of the really cool things about that is meeting uh, people from Iraq. And over the years, I've met a lot of people from Iraq. Some of them approaching me with tears in their eyes, you know, ready to give me a hug. And I always tell people, if an Iraqi refugee who's living halfway around the world or someone I've met in a different country, someone who's reached out just to say hello or to thank me, which is very surreal, seeing as i helped destroy their country. It's quite something if they have the heart and the strength, the dignity to even offer a form of forgiveness to the degree that forgiveness is ever possible. And this is another topic we got into with uh, Avital. I think you'll find it interesting when that episode comes out. But I always say to people, if an Iraqi refugee can forgive me, someone who whose family members could have very well been killed by myself uh, or by my fellow Marines, if they could forgive me, having perhaps killed their family members or their neighbors or their friends, having destroyed, helped destroy the country uh, from which they, they came, from which they once lived, then you could probably forgive me. <laughs> or you could forgive that person that you're upset with. You know, it's interesting. We just had Anand, uh Girondadas on the program. And his first book, which is often, I'm sorry, his second book, which is often overlooked because now he's talking about the billionaire class, is about a gentleman whose family was killed by an Islamic terrorist and who then spent the next 10 years making sure that that person, the quote unquote terrorist person who murdered his family, uh, didn't, didn't, did not go to death row. It's quite the story. And again, it always is interesting to me, the people who have been through the most intense violence are sometimes the ones most willing to forgive, uh, particularly when it is an act of violence and not a, an ongoing pattern of violence. In other words, I don't think sometimes it's okay to forgive. So let, there, let that be known. I do think, I think that, let me say this on my best days, I think you should forgive almost anything. I think that's maybe just my, that Christian side being beaten home on me. You know, it's like forgive, forgive, forgive. And then you have other traditions that say the opposite. It's a very tough, tough thing to think about. In any case, Avital's badass. She's one of my favorite thinkers around. She's really cool. (laughs) I love her. And I really think that you guys are going to enjoy that interview with her. And I don't think we'll get too much shit for it because I don't think too many people who are listening to our program even really know about her or the controversy, though I guess people who are listening now will. But to be honest with you, I think, again, it's not a big deal. I think it's a murky situation, number two. And number three, even if all of it is true, I think personally it's important to forgive Uh, and that's just where my mind's been and after nine months of reflecting and thinking about a lot of things you know I think it's good for all of us I mean we should all be changing all the time right so that's how I feel I feel like it's time to change my perspective on some things and recalibrate my emotions and thoughts and focus on different things and process things differently, become a little more patient, open up that vulnerability more. Patience is always a, a challenge for me. But, you know, something worth worth working on. I think anything that is the challenge is the thing to to think about. You know, if you got an ego, then it's like constantly chipping away at that. Okay, how do I keep that in check? How do I deal with that? You know, if you're lacking confidence, it's like, all right, what are the things I can do to build confidence? Because that's probably the most challenging thing I can do. That's why I like Avital. That's why I like a lot of the continental philosophers. A lot of the thinking there is very deep and thick, and it's based on a lot of traditions. So they'll, you know, you'll find that these thinkers will be quoting other thinkers constantly, and that's because they've sort of developed a framework for how to see the world. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's only limited to that framework, but it means it's highly influenced by that framework. And so, you know, it takes time. It's dense. You know, it takes busting out the the dictionary and the thesaurus and, uh, you know, spending time with it. And I think that's okay. And I think in this culture that we live in of, you know, instant gratification, fast food, all the rest, it's nice to kind of take take some time sometimes. Because we're all guilty, obviously, of just you know bouncing around. Too much phone. Turn that off. Turn this off. Get the fuck away from the computer, whatever it is. Speaking with Abital reminds me, reading philosophy reminds me, to slow the fuck down. And I think that's a good message for right now. I guess the last thing I would mention, maybe because Sergio and I won't get to talk about it before, the holidays, perhaps we will. We've got a lot of interviews coming up. In fact, tomorrow we're speaking with uh, Marianne Williamson. So I am a little nervous about that, but I probably shouldn't be because I'm sure she's going to be nothing but cordial. But I am uh, looking forward to it. And it's funny, after 10 years of uh, interviewing people pretty regularly and then periodically and then not at all and now extremely regularly, I still get nervous. It's almost like public speaking. I've been doing public speaking for 15 years and I still get nervous doing it. And I kind of think it's a good thing because you don't ever quite get comfortable enough to just be like, Oh yeah, I'm the shit. Like I could do this. It's very much the opposite. I don't think, I think I'll do things for the rest of my life and no matter what it'll be, I'll be like, Oh God, I don't belong here. How the hell did, how the hell did I end up here? I don't belong here. But, um, Yeah, speaking with Marianne tomorrow, that'll be fun. And then we have an interview every day, I believe, for the next 10 days. So we're really loading them up before the holidays. So yeah, staying busy. And actually, there's no reason to even talk about that. I was going to talk a little bit about the holidays. Really, the only thing I was going to mention about the holidays is I don't think I'm going to celebrate them at all this year. I think the one thing I'll do is bake some cookies, the ones that I would normally bake, with my mother and then have those and you know not just for myself but i'll bake a ton of them and i'll i'll bring them all over to our friends and you know people in rmc people we're working with friend family friends neighbors i don't know something to give giving stuff away is cool other than that though i'm not gonna celebrate much i usually love uh christmas I was going to say Halloween. That's how much I love Halloween. It's my number one favorite. But I love Christmas. I always do. And it's a shame that you can't, you know, we won't be able to celebrate them as we normally would. And I think because of that, I just don't see the need to really get into the spirit, as you would say. It's really a it's a weird thing, you know. My friend Olivier reminded me in an email earlier that James Baldwin talked about this American urge to entertain yourself at all costs and man I mean James Baldwin was a, a powerful powerful thinker and I just I think about what that means in today's world in the midst of all of this suffering and death sickness poverty economic and I mean pain that people are feeling and yet In this weird American way where, you know, sort of slap on the smile, get in the car, drive to the mall, I'm still shocked by the weird photos I see on my timeline of, like, people taking pictures at restaurants or people taking pictures, even, like, chopping down a Christmas tree as if everything is just fucking normal. Such a weird society and culture sometimes. I really think uh, that it's on all of us to break through that. How quickly things, especially especially toxic and unhealthy things, culture, politics, economic ideas, how quickly they invade the pop culture. And then how quickly it's just the way that people sort of think about things. I think we really have to break through that. And I I worry. I worry about this pandemic in the way that I worry about the wars. Number one, I worry that, they, that this isn't going to end. That this is going to be like this kind of ongoing flu type of thing that some people are saying it could be. And that the vaccines are not going to work the way that people think they're going to work. Now that's the more, my more pessimistic side, but that was my more pessimistic side in 2003 when the wars really kicked off in Afghanistan. Well, in Iraq, Afghanistan had already been going on for a year and a half, two years, and I have that same feeling. It's, this is a significant event. This will have a profound impact, not just in real time, but decades for decades and it's probably not going to end anytime soon and to the degree that it does scale down or it does you know it's under control more than it is now people are going to do their best the media the government the corporations wall street they're going to do their fucking absolute best to make sure that we don't ever talk about this again They're not going to want people to bring it up. They're not going to want to read about it, write about it, hear about it. It could very well be how people feel about it as well. I don't feel that way. I really worry. And I worry that the more we forget. I can imagine now after having been through the wars, and I don't mean as a veteran. I just mean as a person in this society. I can see after after all of these types of events over the years, how easy it is that people forget what just recently happened so I can easily imagine when slavery well let's go when Jim Crow was over or we can go up to present time when segregation and Jim Crow ended I could easily imagine people immediately saying like yeah we we should just move on from this we, we probably, you know, like, why would we talk about this anymore? I mean, it's a bad period. And not understanding that the scars from those period like any kind of trauma that you experience at a young age is carried with you in your mind, in your body, really in your soul. If, I guess, you want to use that term, and you don't even have to use that term, but it is implanted in you. You know, it's, it's part of, it changes you physiologically, but then it also... You know, it stays with you as almost a psychic scar in many ways. And it doesn't have to. I mean, we don't have to let those things, of course, define our lives, but it's there. And I feel like this is the same thing with this pandemic. That this is a scar, a a source of deep trauma, deep pain and resentment. And it's still not even close to being over. And I think we should talk about it like you would, or like a healthy family would talk about something unhealthy that's happening. You know, like when you're in a a good relationship and you know something unhealthy is happening, you sit down and you talk about it. And I worry that we're not going to do that as a nation. And I think it's on all of us. In other words, I could just complain here today and say, oh man, you know, people, we really need to do this. And no, I think all of us have a job to do there. I don't think that means you have to bash people over the head with it every single time you have a conversation with them. But I do think that we cannot allow the government, corporations, the media, Wall Street, to just sweep this under the rug and try and get us all to forget about it so we can all get back to going to concerts and, you know, fucking around, doing whatever. But I also feel like it's going to be hard, very hard to do those things because... The longer this goes on, the longer the economy is fucked up, the less money people have to do those things. So even when or if it becomes safe to do them, who the hell is going to have the money to do them, number one? Number two, is that really the best way we should be spending our time? Am I prescribing no fun at all? No, that's not what I'm prescribing. Am I saying that after all of this, have we not learned the lesson that the most important thing in our lives is politics more important than your family at times see this is i know that's controversial for people to hear that but i i mean i think you can i think you can make that statement and be 100 percent genuine i don't mean always and i don't mean in every context what i'm saying is if we have a decent government, if we had one right now, or over the course of the last nine fucking months, we would be able to spend time with our family that we care so much about. So the kind of time and effort that we put into maintaining relationships, relationships that we might not even be able to maintain or cultivate or nurture because of the bad politics of the country, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, let's make sure we have a good government. Let's make sure that we have a decent society. And then let's spend as much fucking time as we can. Having fun, dancing, making music, making art, having sex, writing, reading, napping. Enjoying theater, movies, whatever it is. It doesn't mean all of our problems are ever going to be all- gone, ever you know, like one day we're just going to wake up and here it is. Everything's perfect. No, I don't believe in that. But I do believe that if we took some pressure off, if we at least got people healthcare, got rid of people's student loan debts, got people living wage jobs, or at least some form of UBI, got rid of people's credit card debt. If you did those things alone, People's worlds would be turned upside down. They'd be so happy. But the only way that that's going to happen is if we can get those people to fight and organize around those issues. And that's the tough catch-22. Nobody's going to do it for us, so we have to do it, even under terrible circumstances. But that's the way I think about it. You know. So it's not like I think, hey, let's be in perpetual misery, let's be in a perpetual, uh, perpetual state of... You know, just thinking about, talking about, acting on political issues. No. But for Christ's sakes, if we don't put more time towards that, as we can see, by not doing so, it really fucks up our ability to have good relationships with our family, friends, loved ones, intimate partners. Or for you scumbags out there, you know, your your side action. <laughs> um yeah i don't know it uh it's a it's so weird that we anyway there here's what i'll do because i'm i'm gonna keep going on about bullshit and we're getting up to an hour which is what i wanted to knock out i um well shit i even forgot the last thing i wanted to say oh james baldwin I'll try and find that speech and I'll post it to the Patreon page. It's a great speech and it's a great quote. But it's about, yeah, it's all about the American tendency to look for entertainment even at times when it's completely inappropriate to look for entertainment. And Baldwin was a deep cat. And I think that's what we're missing so much today is like, people who are like look like it's the point of life isn't just to be happy all the time um, I think we've been told that I think that is what ends up creating a number of pathologies for all of us uh, but that's not necessarily or inherently the point of life and and to the degree that we can chase obtain a certain level of happiness even, however superficial it may be at times or elusive you know to try and maintain that state of affairs at all times is is really uh, inappropriate and it's particularly inappropriate and immature and destructive at a time like this uh, when so many people are suffering when so many people are scared to try and fool ourselves into believing that this momentary fleeting and often superficial form of happiness is somehow making us feel better. I actually think it's making people feel worse. So I've you know spoken with friends who have tried to do any number of normal things. Like, hey, I took the kids out to the pumpkin patch during Halloween and then I came home and drank four bottles of wine and wanted to kill myself. I mean, yeah. <laughs> You know, sometimes it's okay to sit down with your family and be like, you know, life is a real raw deal and we're not in control and no one's steering the ship. And there might not be uh, an afterlife. I, you know, don't particularly believe in one. Uh, And even saying that, believe in one, is an interesting thing. Uh, Again, a conversation to be had, not something I uh, shit on people for if they do believe in an afterlife. But for me, I think the more honest approach is to assume that there isn't one. And then if you get one at the end of the road, uh, cool. (laughs) That's great. It's like a bonus round. But, you know, let's assume there isn't one. And when you assume there isn't one, I think there is a, a level of despair and a level of giving up hope that could be very healthy to kind of sit in and dwell in and examine and explore what those feelings, emotions, thoughts are all about. Sometimes that's where we grow the most. At least that's how I feel. And I get really frustrated because you know, I think sometimes you're expected to put on the you are expected to put on the happy face and sometimes you're just not happy. In the same token, there's people who are just perpetually little shits who can never smile and they're just always open around or whatever and that fucking gets pretty old too. So, a good balance. All right, y'all. I hope this wasn't too annoying for you. I just figured after doing all those years of radio why not try it out again and just fucking jump on the mic smoke a cigarette and uh, rap with people. And I actually enjoyed it. I will probably be doing a couple of these during the what I'll call Christmas break. But we'll also be talking you know, Serge will be back on and yeah, we've got a bunch of cool programs. Ben Burgess coming up. we got a couple of Michael Albert interviews we still got to put out. We've got our interview with Avital Ronell that we just did. we got an interview with Marianne Williamson tomorrow. We've got uh, my friend Jared Peters, tattoo artist, coming on next weekend. Uh, our friend Sue Ellen is coming on. She's a great artist and peace activist. We've got uh, Amir Amirani, who's a great documentary filmmaker from iran and great britain who will be here so yeah not be here i'm sorry i wish he was here (laughs) he'll be in london actually but yeah we'll be talking with him and so yeah we got some cool stuff to end the year and i'm looking forward to it i'm also looking forward to a little bit of a break and i hope this finds all of you in good health and good spirits and we'll talk to you soon